Dear Father, we thank you for blessings. Thank you for all that you have uh, blessed us with, and especially this week, in these meetings, this fellowship. We thank you for this time. We pray that it will be profitable, that we will take what we've gained and what we've learned, and that we will be a blessing to others. That we would not make the mistake of hoarding the blessings we've received, but that we would give them away and thus increase their value to ourselves and to others. In Jesus' name, amen. We started off with Lucifer's rebellion in heaven, and then we progressed to Christ's response in his incarnation. Yeah, not, well, what should we say, 1900 years later, Dr. Kellogg grasped the genius, shall we say. Um, when used in that way, it does not mean super intelligence, but it means the, the very heart and soul of, of Christ's ministry. He, he grasped the genius in that sense and contributed. He was not the sole contributor, but he contributed to the beginning of the loud cry. Unfortunately, as we'll see in our session today, Dr. Kellogg was very mortal, very human, had his own weaknesses, and unfortunately his weaknesses were cultivated to a degree that I can hardly fault him for, and yet they were fatal to him. What I'm saying is he bore more tests than I have ever had, so who am I to throw rocks at him? And yet, he, his choices proved insufficient to the test. And to the best of my estimation, he never recovered. There are those who like to hold out hope. I'm happy for them. I would love to have a reason to hold out hope for Dr. Kellogg. The only hope I have for Dr. Kellogg is that the Lord is in the business of saving souls. And if he comes up in the right resurrection and I have the chance to talk to him in heaven, I will be very happy. But I can't say that I expect it. Anyhow, so we're going to talk today about the Alpha. <clears throat> we'll get into the details of that um, terminology in a moment here. Uh, the other way I express this is simply, this is the bad Kellogg. Kellogg stands as a unique representative and type, and He's a very special character. You know, it's interesting. The Lord sometimes chooses individuals. We spent a fair amount of time talking about Abraham yesterday. King David was a type in many ways. Who else could we point to? In that same category? Joseph, yeah, yeah. Maybe a lesser degree, but yeah, that, that would work. You know, there's not a whole lot of them, though. Actually, I hadn't 
really developed this thought before, but there's not a whole lot that are, are used as representing whole categories of experience and, and standing before God. I suggest that Dr. Kellogg is one of those. So let's go on. So in the alpha, in the bad Kellogg stage, the core thought was anything but God. That's important to understand that, and so we'll hope to do that. Again, I'm going to have to go quickly because I have a lot of information. Dr. Kellogg had a hard road to hope. I speak to every member of the church. In Christ's name, guard your thoughts, control your feelings. Let your speech be such that heaven can approve. No longer be so sadly deceived as to think you are doing God's work and God's will and persecuting your brethren with your tongue, with your strong prejudice and jealousies. Why do you delight in making your wicked speeches and indulging your wicked feelings against Dr. Kellogg? Has he not sufficient burdens to carry? Would you crush him to the earth with your suspicions prompted of Satan? Would you feel great pleasure in seeing the Health Institute go down? Is that what you desire? Now notice the date on that. 1882. Dr. Kellogg wasn't converted, reconverted, whatever, for another six years. <laughs> okay. By this time, he'd been the medical director of the sanitarium for six years already. He started in 1876, so now he's been in there for six years. Kellogg, <sighs> Kellogg had to deal with a lot of prejudice on a lot of different fronts. It was not easy. Six years later now, 1888, this is before his conversion experience in uh, the end of the year, Ellen White writes, Dr. Kellogg has needed the sympathy and confidence of his brethren. There should have been a tender compassion for him in his position of trust, and they should have pursued a course that would have gained and retained his confidence. God would have it thus, but there has been instead a spirit of suspicion and criticism. If the doctor fails in doing his duty and being an overcomer at last, those brethren who have failed in their want of wisdom and discernment to help the man when and where he needed their help will be in a large measure responsible. You may recall that similar comment was made of Jones and Wagner. A large measure of other people being responsible, however, is not enough to get you or me off the hook. <laughs> If Jesus had failed, his enemies would have been in a large measure responsible and the plan of salvation would have failed nonetheless. <laughs> okay. Just because you can blame somebody else, it doesn't do you any good. Let's get over it. <laughs> okay. That's just not going to help you any. So don't, don't spend your time trying to, trying to blame other people. It's just, it's just not, not productive. The past should be subject for keen regret. The Lord would now have the medical missionary work recognized as the helping hand of God. What does it mean when she says the Lord would now have it recognized? It hadn't been recognized. Okay, yeah. The Lord has given Dr. Kellogg his work. It is a fact that our ministers are very slow to become health reformers, notwithstanding all the light which the Lord has given upon this subject. This has caused Dr. Kellogg to lose confidence in them. Why the ministers? And again, I would point to the fact that they were in a tougher spot than most people. They were traveling. Tra you know, I, I don't know. 
do you find it easy to get good food when you travel? <laughs> it's, it's still not as easy, you know. But put yourself back in the 1880s, the 1890s, you know. What are the odds you're going to just pull up to a restaurant someplace and find some nice home-cooked vegetarian something or the other, you know? So it was, it was easy for them to, uh, to let that slide a little bit, okay? Now this statement, we don't have the date yet, but this statement was written in 1898. So this is 16 years after the first one we looked at. And notice in the first line it says, the past should be subject to keen regret. Well, that's at least 16 years, but in all probability, it includes the six years before that, too. So 22 years from Dr. Kellogg's coming to Battle Creek to, to work at the sanitarium. He'd basically gotten flack the whole time. Now, some folks find it natural to resist becoming health reformers. It's pretty easy to see it as, you know, in some people's minds, it's easy to see it as being an entirely personal matter. What I do with my life, you know, what's, what's it to them, right? Well... It is something to them, because what you do with your life affects how you relate to them. The final judgment may yet reveal that Dr. Kellogg lost his soul largely because of blindness on that point in other people's minds. Right? They rejected his health reform activities, led them to oppose him. and. If he fails at last at being overcomer, those who have given him a lot of grief will largely be responsible. And it still won't get him off the hook. But let's go on. Speaking primarily of the ministers, their tardy work in health reform has created in him a spirit of criticism, and he has borne down on them in an unsparing manner, which the Lord does not sanction. He has belittled the gospel ministry, and in his regard and ideas has placed the medical mission work above the ministry. I have seen that in the censuring of ministers, remarks have been made which have not been to the honor and glory of God. Okay, not hard to imagine this, uh, knowing anything about humanity. So I suspect you've all run into human beings someplace, okay? Uh, if you give a guy a hard time, there's a good chance he's going to eventually, you know, kind of lose his enthusiasm for really liking you. <laughs> okay, and Kellogg got tired of the ministers as a class. And he just kind of gave up on them. They're not doing what they're supposed to be doing. Who needs them? Now here's the hard rub. God needs them. Church needs them. You don't dismiss the ministry. That casually. They're there for a reason. They may not be fulfilling their reason. Saul was kind of off the beaten track when he was throwing javelins at David. But you know what? It was still the Lord's anointed. You know, anybody like me that was raised in the 60s and 70s, yeah. Rebellion is, is, is as natural to me <laughs> as it is to breathe. Okay? <laughs> That's a little hard. You know, this whole Lord's anointed thing. Is, oh, give me a break. <laughs> you, know? you know what? It's still true. It's still true. I, I struggle with knowing how it applies sometimes. Because just because you're the Lord's anointed doesn't mean you get off scot-free. You're still the Lord's anointed. <laughs> We, we work with these things, right? A lesson here. Someone else's fault is a really bad reason for losing your own soul. 
Let's not go there. Those who refused the warnings of God followed a course of action which brought its sure result. These influences have sometimes made the work of Dr. Kellogg doubly as hard as it should have been. They have led him to stand apart to some degree from the ministry. I desire to present matters as they are presented to me. Such a spirit of criticism and fault-finding has done the work Satan designed should be done. Dr. Kellogg has been led to take the course he deemed it his duty to take. He has not connected with those who were not in sympathy with the work he knew to be of God. Now, this is where life is going to get tough for you, when you're doing what you know God wants to be done and others are not helping you. <laughs> if they, maybe they're actually opposing you. That means they're opposing God. That means they're evil through and through and they should be cut off at the knees. <coughs> no, probably not. It means that they are sinful human beings, probably a lot like you and me. Okay? It is so difficult being patient with stupid human beings. <laughs> but you know what? It goes two ways. Okay? <laughs> it goes two ways. Okay. <clears throat> Internal opposition is always the hardest test. You know, you look at the list of those we've lost, some of the brightest lights been because of internal opposition. We almost lost James White over this issue. Well, what to do? Okay, let's go on. <clears throat> Working from cause to effect here. Later, let's see, that was, was that 1899? Okay, so later that same year, Ellen White wrote her concerns that Dr. Kellogg was going too far now. I have light from the Lord that Dr. Kellogg needs to be guarded. He is leaving a wrong impression on minds. He has made a mistake in supposing that the medical missionary work has an importance above every other work. Medical missionary work has its place, but it has been made disproportionately important. Now, this is kind of fascinating. You remember yesterday, she said, some people complain that it's disproportionately large. No, you guys are disproportionately small. <laughs> okay. But here, she says, no, now it's being made disproportionately important. It can still, it could be larger, you know. Don't stop doing good things. But understand the relationship. It's the salvation of souls that's the primary thing. Had Dr. Kellogg's brethren stood with him in the first of his experience in connection with health reform, the present condition of things would not now exist. We reap that which we sow. 20-some years before, some of the ministers had just been a little more compassionate, <laughs> you know? A little more on the ball with their health reform, perhaps, so that uh, Dr. Kellogg would respect them. You know, some different people think in different ways, you know, but there's a certain segment of the population that if they don't have reason to respect you, they just won't listen to you, <laughs> okay? I hate to say it, but I'm pretty much that way, you know? <laughs> yeah. if, you, if you have not won my respect, I, I don't pay a lot of attention to what you say, probably. You know? That's <laughs> just, just the way I am. That's right. I guess that rebellion is as natural to me as, you know? But that's my natural approach to life, you know? And Kellogg, I think, was kind of that way, and these guys had lost his respect. 
So here's a thought for you. Influence is earned. Remember that famous statement how Jesus ministered to the people, you know, he mingled with them, he ministered to them, he, you know, he, he won their confidence. Now, this is especially important for anyone working with the youth. Academy age, younger. What is the word confidence? Where does that come from? It comes from the word to confide. What does confide mean? To reveal something that he could use against me. That, that's really what it means. Okay? To have faith with. Con is with. Fide, right? Confide, Latin. Okay? To have faith with. To show faith in. I, I admit my weakness. And, and this guy could, hey, you know what Dave's right? No, no, that would not be helpful. Okay? When I have that confidence, then I'm in a position to help that person. If I haven't gained the confidence, don't expect them to listen to you. Why should they? <laughs> Not a real reason yet. Okay, let's go on. Okay. <clears throat> Although there may be unworthy ones connected with the ministry, yet no one can ignore the ministry without ignoring Christ. Dr. Kellogg, Something is the matter. Now, remember, she's in Australia. He's in Battle Creek, right? Something is the matter. You are represented to me as being in danger of standing apart from our people, feeling that you are a complete whole. But if you blind your, excuse me, bind yourself up with yourself, you will make a confederacy that will be broken to pieces. For no confederacy can stand but that which God has framed. Those who are receiving an education hear insinuations from time to time which demerit the church and the ministry. She's talking about in his nurse's training program, right? And uh, I don't know what year this is. Uh, 96, I think that one is. I can't quite read it. We'll see it. Next slide. Um, this may already be into his uh, American Medical Missionary College, which was a, a physician training program. But he said, she's saying, in your teaching, from time to time, you are demeriting the church and the ministry. Why? Because they're not health reformers. Come on. We're teaching the obvious, intelligent, sensible understanding of how to remain healthy, and these nitwits are not doing it. So how smart are they? It's really easy to make people look dumb when, in fact, they are dumb. Okay? It's, it's just a weakness that we've got going with us. Okay? You have to zip your lips sometimes. They may be dumb. Not going to help for you to tell people that they're dumb. Do not, I beg of you, instill into the minds of the students ideas that will cause them to lose confidence in God's appointed ministers. But this you are most certainly doing, whether you are aware, whether thou, <laughs> whether you are aware of it or not. I'm sure that's not supposed to be a thou. I don't know what happened there. The work done for those who come to you for instruction is not complete unless they are educated to work in connection with the church. And it was 1898, so yes, that would have included the medical training. Okay, well, time went on. By 1900, Ellen White would write to the General Conference president, seek to save Dr. Kellogg from himself. He is not heeding the counsel he should heed. He was tired of Ellen White's counsel to maintain ties with the ministers. 
They were still opposing him. They were still just as much of a pain in the neck as ever. Now it had been 24 years and counting. Dr. Kellogg was beginning to drift. Like Lucifer before him, he was deciding that he was wise enough to choose his own path. God forbid that the purposes Dr. Kellogg has in mind should be carried out. Our work is not to be a divided work. Getting tired of the ministers. Do our thing with the doctors. A reminder, just to recognize again how important that issue is. When the gospel ministers and the medical mission workers are not united, there is placed on our churches the worst evil that can be placed there. So this was a serious issue. Our work is not to be divided. Well, still in 1900, opposition to Kellogg's work continued year after year. It gave the devil opportunity to tempt him to impatience and pride. Bear in mind, Dr. Kellogg was, hands down, the most educated Adventist in the world. Like, nobody else was in the same category. Okay? And it made it easy for him, you know, the, most of the ministers, they were farm kids. Not a bad thing for a minister to come from, by the way. But once you start getting, you know, a little puffed up in your mind about your education, these guys don't have it. And Kellogg, with his classic wit, which I struggle with because I find it so funny, and I probably shouldn't, but yeah, he, he described the, uh, the ministry collectively, he said, it is a fine collection of mediocre men. <laughs> well, the Lord has sent you warnings, but you have not heeded them. The deceptive power of the enemy has led you to leave God's banner trailing in the dust. Well, Dr. Kellogg has committed himself as working undenominationally in a work which has taken the money from a people who are decidedly a denominational people. They found it so hard to work with the church, he's putting much less effort into the whole evangelistic side of things, he spent more time and money helping people. By this time he was going great guns down in Chicago down there, um, and he was helping people. Now it makes you feel good to help people, do you know that? It, it does, okay? Even to some degree if you have you know, if you're mixed up and you got bad motives, probably. Kellogg liked to help people. He was a generous guy. Ellen White describes him as how she says that one can be generous in his personality, and yet Kellogg was sucking in all the money of the church and being extremely selfish in regard to everything else. <laughs> okay? He was generous. He loved to set up generous programs. But he was being extremely greedy when it came to the available funding of the church. Well, anyhow, <clears throat> um, let's go on. The work has been hindered. The cause of God should have a different showing, far different. And who is to blame for this difference? You... Dr. Kellogg, give heed to men not of our faith. You delight to show what you have done, and by a free use of money that was not yours to handle in a way that God has not appointed. Dr. Kellogg, by this time, was widely recognized in the world, both for his medical skill and also for his philanthropic endeavors. 
He, in the work in Chicago, he's somewhat patterned after the, uh, the work being done by a Dr. Docant in New York, who was a famous guy, and Kellogg was following the same techniques, and there was some good coming out of it. But it was extremely expensive. It was learning, burning up an awful lot of money. Well, she wrote that in 1899, 1900, something like that, I think it was. Nothing much changed in the next couple of years, and so finally the Lord said, no, time to shake this thing up a bit. And on February 18, 1902, the sanitarium burnt to the ground. Now, this was actually a good thing in many ways. And it gave Dr. Kellogg a wonderful opportunity, which he unfortunately completely neglected. The opportunity, which he had had plenty of counsel about, but not many others knew of, was that now was a chance to take the funds and the expertise and whatever else that you have left after the sanitarium has burnt down and build about five or ten little sanitariums scattered around the country. There was all sorts of counsel that had been given to Kellogg along those lines. He knew it. But it's quite interesting that Ellen White had, had been almost secretive, almost secretive. She wasn't telling a lot of other people. She herself even mentions that when Dr. Kellogg sat down with the General Conference Committee to make plans for the rebuilding of the sanitarium, they remembered that she had encouraged them to cooperate with him in every way they could. Listen, you're ministers. You've got to learn to work with this guy. They remembered that part. She says that they were not familiar with the counsels that had come to Dr. Kellogg that the sanitarium was already much too large. What's interesting to me is that included her own son. Willie White was on that committee. And they all listened to Dr. Kellogg. Now, he didn't give them a completely straightforward depiction of, of events and things. He kind of, uh, you know, slanted his presentation to make it look better. But they all voted for it, trying to harmonize with Dr. Kellogg and not realizing by this time they were being played. And it was only afterwards that Ellen White said, you know, this is not what should have happened. There is an interesting, interesting element in the Lord's dealing with apostasy. which I personally struggle with, but I've seen it in too many different situations now to dismiss it. I, I, I'll, I'll just say that for myself, I don't think I have the handle on this yet. But that element is that the rank and file are often left to the mercies of the apostate without much clarification in the early stages. It says that Lucifer had to manifest his evil character, and she says this was allowed to happen before anything was done to help the other angels. 
Think of Judas, who was never rebuked until the feast at Simon's house, and even that was a pretty soft rebuke. Jesus never took Peter, James, and John and said, no, guys, we've got to talk to you about Judas. Well, Judas is a real issue here. He never said that. When he got up from the Last Supper and headed out, they all thought he was going off to buy some more bread or something. There's that in Desire of Ages. I'm not quite sure what to make out of this. The same thing happened with Kellogg. Much of his apostasy developed in the rank and file, certainly, and even the General Conference Committee often hadn't heard much about it until it was developed, quite well developed. The only thing I think I know for sure at this point is we all better be studying for ourselves. <laughs> That's the one thing I think I can take home out of that, that situation. I don't quite understand it. I'm wrestling with that one. It just, you know, just kind of hit me as, as I'm working through this book I'm writing, and, and it just kind of slapped me in the face. I said, wow, what do I do with this? Because it's, it's consistent now. It's consistent in each of these rebellions. Well, you know, General Conference Committee didn't understand the situation. Dr. Kellogg was not interested in a bunch of little scattered sanitariums because, and this is my interpretation, I don't have a thus saith the Lord on this one, but I think it's patently obvious. By this time, Dr. Kellogg was very big on control. And you know what? Being in charge of one sanitarium is a lot easier than trying to be in charge of ten. <laughs> okay? But he wasn't interested in scattering out. That was exactly why it needed to be scattered out. Okay? It's so that different people would be tasked, they would develop, and, and different skills and abilities. I mean, Kellogg was a he was the man when it came to the medical work, but you know, Kellogg had his own weaknesses too. And other people would have developed strengths that he did not have. Small is better. You know, almost, you know, there's a level, you don't want to get smaller than small, but you know, whatever. But small is, small is a good thing. Okay, okay. Well, anyhow. <clears throat> Nonetheless, Dr. Kellogg chose to rebuild in Battle Creek. He, uh, like I say, he, He's kind of sly about it. He scaled everything down in his plans. He said, well, we're not going to have as many hospital rooms or as many you know, rooms in the, patient rooms in the sanitariums. They were all, however, bigger and fancier. <laughs> uh, and he didn't specify a lot of things on the materials list when he talked to the, the brethren to get their consent. And all of a sudden, they start seeing very expensive components coming into this building. You know, some, uh, some pretty fancy marbles coming in, you know, some uh, fancy hardwoods coming in, really, really nice carpets coming in. Yep. Kellogg, <coughs> one of the biggest, the best, and the greatest. Now, the big problem with that was it was going to cost money. And the church by this time was head over heels in debt in all sorts of ways because of mismanagement, both in the medical work and in the uh, general conference, let's be honest. They had assumed debts and were not so good at paying them off. And so they, were, they had lots of debt, lots of, lots of issues. Where are they going to get the money to, to rebuild this building? Nobody knew until Dr. Kellogg came up with a Oh, what was it? A.D. Daniels, I just read it the other day, a letter A.D. Daniels, um, quite a, 
fantastic offer, quite a, I forget the exact wording, but he was very happy when Daniel's first advice says, wow, this is a great thing. This is a wonderful thing. Dr. Kellogg says, you know, I just wrote a book. I'll donate all my, my, my earnings from the book. We'll get the review to print it for, for free. We'll get the people in the church to sell it without taking a commission. And all the profits can go to help the sanitarium. And they thought, well, that's a pretty good idea. So Dr. Kellogg, who had you know, dictated this book out in his circle, riding around in his um, bicycle, you know, whatever, he says, okay, let's, let's do that. Now, if Kellogg had been straight up honest with a variety of things, life would have been better. If he'd been honest about what he was trying to rebuild there at the sanitarium, I think even the brethren who were trying to harmonize, him with him, harmonize with him would have choked a bit, and that would have been helpful. Um, if he'd been honest about the book, that would have been good too. Uh, but instead, he, he, he selectively presented things, you know? It's usually pretty hard to catch Kellogg in an outright lie. There are some. Not many. Most of them were inright lies. <laughs> okay? He was a master at sophistry, as the saying goes. Okay, he could he could he could paint a picture without telling you anything false, but the whole picture was false. It's amazing. Well, the problem with the book, of course, as you no doubt have heard somewhere along the line, is it contains some pantheism. Now, by today's standards, as near as I know, it's pretty mild, <laughs> okay. Um, there are things I don't know about the book for one very simple reason. I've never read it and I don't plan to, okay. Ellen White said, do not read the book, so I haven't. All I know about Living Temple is about the three or four paragraphs that everybody quotes, you know, and it's been quoted from this book to that book to the other book. Everybody quotes the same thing about the, sh the tree maker and the tree and the boot maker and the boot. You've probably read those too. But so if, if that's the worst of his pantheism, it's pretty light, okay, compared to what you can run into in, in your local health food store. Um, but the Living Temple, yeah, the Living Temple. Now, <clears throat> Pantheism, just very quickly to explain, pantheism, pan, Latin means all across, theism is godness, okay? So it means everything is God, okay? Pantheism means that everything in the universe is in fact God, and God is in fact everything in the universe. Now just because we have this ridiculous penchant for being fussy and picky about little details, there's a new word that you might run into, that's panentheism has an extra E-N, you know, panentheism. All that means is that everything in the universe is God, but there's a little bit of God up here that's not in the universe. Exactly where that part of God would be, I don't really know, but it's outside the universe. <laughs> okay, so um, that is a distinction that some people think is important and I think is stupid. But, you know, uh, in case you run into the word panentheism, that's, that's the difference, okay? Pantheism just simply says that God is in everything and that everything is God. So that means trees and flowers and mosquitoes and dolphins. Now, they're all God too, which is nice. Uh, I suppose, if that's what you're into. Okay. Um, <clears throat> it, uh, pantheism has a variety of problems. <laughs> uh, perhaps the, the single biggest one is if every thing is God, that means I'm God. 
or at least, at the very least, I have some spark of divinity within. Which means, who actually stands in any position to tell me what to do? I'm God, right? You can try to tell God what to do? Not going to work. So, uh, part of the issue, and this is, this is classic Kellogg sophistry, right? The title, Living Temple, is from a Bible verse. Know ye not that your body is the temple of God? He says, this is the living temple. God dwells within you. But Kellogg had it that God dwelt within everyone. Saint, sinner, no different. Now you're getting into some really dicey stuff there, you know? Can you explain how, you know, Christ in you, the hope of glory, can you explain how Christ dwells in you? I really can't. He does. The Bible says he does. I believe it. But, you know, Ella White comes maybe as close as I would know. She says that it's through the fine nerves of the brain that heaven communicates with man. So I'd like to think that, you know, Christ dwelling in us has something to do with the brain. But beyond that, what does that word mean? You know, I mean, I don't know what I mean. So I'd, I'm not going to try and define that. Okay, it's beyond me. It's good. Jesus, Christ in you, hope of glory. I'm good with that. Don't ask me, you know. Um, you can get really ridiculous. You start trying to take spiritual truth and break it down to biological facts sometimes. There's examples of that, unfortunately, in our history. Anyhow, um, <clears throat> pantheism is, is bad stuff. It's wrong. We'll touch on it a bit more in a bit, but let's go on with the history for right now. One of the most fascinating things in this whole experience is how long, how hard, how diligently Ellen White sought to save Dr. Kellogg. The, in my opinion, the strongest public defense that she ever gave at Dr. Kellogg was the general conference. Very public. You know, just, no, I'm, again, we have such thin skin. You know, it's pathetic. We have to be so, so wishy-washy, nicey about everything we say. <laughs> it's just, just ridiculous. Uh, they used to, they used to kind of get up and say what they meant. Okay, a and she did in defense of Dr. Kellogg in 1903, a full year after he'd written *Living Temple*. She was defending a pantheist. She was not defending pantheism. Said nothing about the topic. It was not the time to address it. She was still trying to save this guy. That's what she said. Speaking at the general conference, a largely a ministerial audience, God does not endorse the efforts put forth by different ones to make the work of Dr. Kellogg as hard as possible in order to build themselves up. God gave the light on health reform, and those who rejected it rejected God. One and another who knew better said that it all came from Dr. Kellogg, and they made war upon him. This had a bad influence on the doctor. Stop for just a minute and think about those last little, last few words there. Is that hard to imagine? Somebody makes war upon you, you know? They're spraying M16 bullets around about your head, 
Is that going to have a bad influence? You know? <laughs> I could see how it might, okay? This had a bad influence on the doctor. He put on the coat of irritation and retaliation. Interesting little figure of speech right there. God did not want him to stand in a position of warfare, and he does not want you to stand there. God does not want us to engage in warfare with our brethren. Get over it. That doesn't mean you can't stand up for truth. Anyhow, unfortunately, the doctor and largely the ministerial audience she was speaking to did not respond to her efforts. Well, let's see. A few months later, she did address the pantheism issue more or less head on. Uh, and when she did so, she used some really interesting terms, okay? And one particular phrasing that becomes important is the concept of the alpha and the omega, okay? Uh, just for real rough uh, understanding on this, alpha is the first letter of the Greek alphabet. So alpha, beta, gimel, ain, okay? Alpha, beta, that's where we get our word alphabet, okay? So alpha is like an A, it's the first letter, and the omega is the last letter. So that would be a Z or possibly a Z, okay? Um, so she speaks of the Alpha and Omega. Now, she's not the first one who did that, of course. Jesus said, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, okay? The first and the last, okay? So it's a biblical phrasing. Notice how she used it, however. Many will depart from the faith, giving heed to seducing spirits and doctrines of devils. We have now before us the Alpha of this danger. The omega will be of a most startling nature. Living temple contains the alpha of these theories. I knew that the omega would follow in a little while, and I trembled for our people. In the book Living Temple, there is presented the alpha of deadly heresy. The omega will follow and will be received by those who are not willing to heed the warning God has given. Now, the interesting thing about these statements is how little they tell us about the Omega. We know quite a bit about the Alpha because we have the history. But the Omega, that which is yet future, well, we know it's going to be startling. <laughs> we know she trembled. And we know that those who do not receive the warning will receive the, the Omega. That's about all that she specifically, explicitly tells us about the omega. If you're going to understand the omega, you're going to have to derive some concepts from its relationship to the alpha. Okay? So <clears throat> if I told you, go three miles due north and you'll come to my house. Uh, if you happen to be in the right place and you followed my directions, which you couldn't do without bushwhacking your way through the hills. But anyhow, uh, but if, if, you, if you did, you would arrive at a place you've never been, and you'd look around and say, oh, that must be Dave's house. It's the only one there. Okay. If you know your location and the direction you're moving, you can start working on a map. Okay. If you know the alpha, 
and you understand its relationship, or the, the relationship of the alpha to the omega, then you can have some concept of the omega. Make sense? Now, unfortunately, we spent 60 years headed in the wrong direction with this whole thing, uh, because no, I don't have time to tell the full story. Um, <laughs> I'm going to run out of time. I've got too many slides here. Uh, let's just put it this way. Um, the, the, the simple expectation is alpha is acorn, omega is oak tree. Okay? This is the beginning, this is the end of the same thing. That's the simple idea. It seemed too simple. Right at first, everybody says, oh no, Kellogg's going to do something next. And they kept an eye on Kellogg, but you know, he got disfellowshipped in 1907, and he had less and less contact with the church as time went on. And he, yeah, doesn't seem to be him so much. So then we have to go looking. What, what's, the, uh, what's the omega? You know? And people were looking for pantheism and things like that, and it really wasn't an issue during those years. Sometime, I think, in the 1920s, give or take, somebody came up with a new approach. They said, well, hey, you know, let's, let's, let's think about this just a minute here. This is the alpha, and the omega is way over there. Maybe the omega is the opposite of the alpha. And there were about 12 different ideas that came up of people suggesting there's an apostasy going on. This is the opposite of that. This has got to be the omega. You know, in most of those cases, I can concur with their concern. You know, uh, there are apostasies that come up now and then. Okay, there are issues and problems. But it's really difficult to deal with anything as an opposite. You may not think that, you know. If I said, what's the opposite of salt? Some people would say sugar, and other people would say pepper. Okay. If I said, what's the opposite of a cat? You might say dog, but in reality, the opposite of a cat is a giraffe, because cats are little tiny short critters, and giraffes are really tall. Okay. So <laughs> trying to reason with an opposite frame of logic, not really helpful. Okay. It wasn't until the 1980s, actually, when any of you remember the laser disc concordance to the writings of Ellen G. White? Got one hand, got two hands, okay. When, those, when that crazy thing came out, <laughs> it was the first time you could actually kind of semi-search the spirit of prophecy. Oh man, it was time consuming, but it was sure fun, okay? <laughs> it was like a Strong's concordance for the spirit of prophecy. You couldn't sit down and read Desire of Ages at all, it just wasn't there. But you could go through word by word, and there's three words on this side and three words on that side. Oh, okay, let's take that one, and then we'll go that one, and we could, oh, you know, you could rebuild the whole thing, just like you could rebuild the Bible with a Strong's concordance, but you know, it's not a quick way of dealing with things. But you could find every instance of a given word. And when that was done, all the phrases Ellen White used with this issue, train of heresies and the alpha and the omega, none of them had any hint towards opposite. So actually in 1988, I wrote an article in which I said, the omega is coming and it's going to be spiritualism and pantheism. 
And that raised a lot of eyebrows, and I got a few scoffing letters back at me. <laughs> because, oh, come on. Adventists aren't into that stuff. If anything, Adventists are like going into secular science. They're not going into, woo, woo. You know, that's not, that's not where they're going. You know what? That was 88. And we've come away since then. And it's not nearly so hard to imagine as it once was. Let's go on. Ellen White writing, As I am shown the special things of Satan's science and how he deceived the holy angels, I am afraid of the men who have entered into the study of the science of Satan carried into their warfare in heaven. Oh, how I have longed to be where I should not be compelled to see the same science practiced on this earth by medical practitioners. How my heart has been agonized as, as I have seen souls accepting the inducements held out to them to unite with those who were warring against God. Key thought out, I want you to catch out of this. Kellogg's apostasy was a replay of Lucifer. They're practicing the same science, okay? That's, that's the key thought there. When they once accept the bait, it seems impossible to break the spell that Satan casts over them because the enemy works out the science of deception as he worked it out in the heavenly courts. He uses human agencies to carry on his work with other human beings. He has worked so diligently with men in our day that he has won the game again and again. When they once accept the bait, it seems impossible to break the spell. You know, it's... it's there is, I think, a much clearer application of that in our day than I am aware of, having been the case in Kellogg's day. And when you go reading the accounts of those who have miraculously been rescued from involvement in this kind of mystical activity, which we haven't documented the mysticism part, but that's coming, but those who have gotten involved in, their, in, in mystical activity uh, any of you know new Rick Howard, for instance? Pastor Rick Howard, okay, his case is a classic. Uh, what's his name? Baron is another story. And everybody that, that has been there and has gotten out will tell you that first contact, when you're messing around with mysticism, that first contact with something that is obviously not you is compelling. All of a sudden, you're in contact with the universe, and you see the oneness of everything. Uh, yeah, that would be pantheism. Uh, it is absolutely compelling. You can read the same thing from those who have not come out of it. <laughs> okay, um, Sue Monk Kidd is one of the classic examples where she tells the story of, of, um, of, of how she was ensnared in that sort of a thing. Of course, she's very happy. She's now preaching some sort of a pantheistic goddess, mother, earth type of deity type of thing. How does one accept this bait? By ignoring the warning. Okay? What's the warning? Don't read the book. <laughs> Don't read the book. Okay? We have reached the perils of the last days when some, yes, many, shall depart from the faith, giving heed to seducing spirits and doctrines of devils. Be cautious in regard to what you read and how you hear. Take not a particle of interest in spiritualistic theories. Satan is waiting to steal a march upon everyone who allows himself to be deceived by his hypnotism. He begins to exert his power over them just as soon as they begin to investigate his theories. Wow. Don't read the book. Wow. That's why I haven't read the book. Don't watch the movie. Don't listen to the songs. Don't, I don't know, any of that other stuff. Suffer not yourselves to open the lids of a book that is questionable. There is a hellish fascination in the literature of Satan. 
It is the powerful battery by which he tears down a simple religious faith. Never feel that you are strong enough to read infidel books, for they contain a poison like that of asps. They can do you no good and will assuredly do you harm. In reading them, you are inhaling the miasmas of hell. That's not a good recommendation. Okay, yeah, today every format of media is, has been used in that regard. And again, let me point out, this is anathema to academia. The idea that there's something I have to stay away from is totally contrary to the whole concept of if we can only understand it, then we can explain it. If you only understand it, you will be deceived. Don't do it. So here's a hot tip. Go read the book. As Dr. Kellogg drifted further and further from God and his influence spread more and more, the thoughts of Ellen White turned often to the story of Lucifer. As she sought to alert others to the growing problem, she realized that Dr. Kellogg was following in the same track. Writing to the General Conference, read in my books, Patriarchs and Prophets and Great Controversy, the story of the first great apostasy. History is being repeated and will be repeated. Read then and understand. The point is, they hadn't. <laughs> She's trying to get these guys up to speed. Kellogg is doing the Lucifer thing. You've got to understand what you're up against. <clears throat> no wonder Lucifer's story explains so much about Dr. Kellogg's apostasy because it turns out that Dr. Kellogg's apostasy was choreographed by the same mastermind. No greater deception could be presented to the minds of men than the representation you have made of God. That's the pantheism thing. Souls will be lost through the sowing of the sentiments found in living temple. In presenting error, you have united with the prince of darkness. When you wrote that book, you were not under the inspiration of God. There was by your side the one who inspired Adam to look at God in a false light. So I guess that means Lucifer can run in circles. Because if he was going to be by Kellogg's side and he was riding his bike, then he'd have to. <laughs> You, Dr. Kellogg, have been the spokesman repeating the words of accusation and condemnation of the arch-deceiver. Your science has been used to benumb the sensibilities and confuse the judgment of others. In long night talks, you have presented your mind and plans and works, and these have become their mind and plan and works. In listening to your words, these men have imbibed the very science of the tempter. You have twisted and manipulated and misstated and misrepresented the testimonies that God has given, making them of no effect. Notice the long night talks. This is something that she is very specific about, and we'll see on the next slide, was not at all happy with. It's interesting that she gives so many you know, column inches in her, her, her letters and things to this very specific issue, long night talks. Don't do that either. This whole matter has been presented to me. You have worked as Lucifer worked in the heavenly courts to persuade his associates to unite with him. The enemy has used his arts upon your mind. Your boasted study of science and your assertion that you had obtained something excellent have deceived the men connected with you and they have refused to listen to the warnings sent to keep them from listening to your false representations. In their day, it was not only don't read the book, it was don't talk to the doctor. Ellen White herself on several occasions was forbidden to have any conversation with Dr. Kellogg. When I was in Tacoma Park, living in Carroll House, many things were presented to me in vision. One of them, a committee meeting, held during the night hours in the Battle Creek Sanitarium. That meeting was conducted by Dr. Kellogg. Many of the physicians were present, and Willie White, having been sent for to attend a special council, was reined up in this committee meeting. 
oh, what agony of mind I suffered as I was viewing the way in which Dr. Kellogg conducted that meeting. I may sometime describe it, but not now. I have told Willie that if I that if ever plans were made for him to go into another night session with Dr. Kellogg, and I knew it, I would certainly exercise all the power God would give me to break up such an interview. Wow. Evil angels were there, and if the physicians present had had their true senses about them, they would have understood the spirit and influence of the actions of Dr. Kellogg and of the words spoken by him on that occasion. She never did get around to describing that. But Willie did. There's no fault finding on Willie, but to him it was just another meeting. It happened to go really late at night. He didn't register any particular, he wasn't happy with the meeting. Kellogg was being, you know, kind of a jerk. But it was, it went till two in the morning, I think, or something like that. He didn't, in his, in his letter, he didn't, he didn't register that he had been on the brink of danger the way it was presented to his mother. So I take from that that long night talks may appear as innocent as a book. Don't read the book. Don't do the long night talks. Not with somebody like Kellogg. Probably a good idea to go to bed anyhow before 2 o'clock in the morning. But, you know, there might be an occasion where you're dealing with somebody that might be justified, but she is just adamant on this point. This long night talk thing is, is like incredibly dangerous. It must, you know, your brain's tired, it's more suggestible or suge you know, susceptible or something. I don't know. I don't have to understand everything. I just have to not read the book. <laughs> it would have been better for Dr. Kellogg if he had never been born. If he continues to build himself up in his own magical arts of mind and influencing other minds, what chapters of experience will be open before the universe of heaven? The light will reveal every phase of his companionship with satanic agencies. Now, some of that's interesting. I do not know every phase of Kellogg's companionship with satanic agencies. Was he involved in classic mysticism? I don't have the evidence. Sounds like it, though. Kind of sounds like it. Ellen White doesn't describe anything that I can, I can, at least I haven't found it so far. Anyhow. I know the seducing power of Dr. Kellogg's advisor, and I have no other name to give it but the seductive influence of satanic agencies. Dr. Kellogg has dealt in this influence to a greater or less degree. He has not changed, except to be more secretive. I have not one ray of hope regarding him, unless he understands that through satanic agencies he is striving for power over human minds. This has been shown me. This is the hypnotic thing. Dr. Kellogg is linked up with the great deceiver. <clears throat> he has not realized what he was doing any more than the angels who fell realized what they were doing. But he has tempted Satan to tempt him. He has studied hypnotism and spiritualism for the purpose of bringing minds to endorse sentiments that mean a denial of the faith once delivered to the saints. He has not entered upon this work all at once, but by degrees. He has ensnared his own mind and capabilities. He would now resort to any device rather than to humble his heart before God and to acknowledge his wrongs. I have seen Dr. Kellogg exerting a hypnotic influence upon persons, and at such times the arch deceiver was his helper. Those who sustain him are guilty with him. This blindness of understanding is a strange thing in our ranks. Dr. Kellogg places himself in the position of one who is abused because he cannot carry everything with him. He doesn't get everything he wants, right? But he is still at work with all subtlety. I have warned our people 
for they do not understand his underhand secretive working, and he works with such ingenuity to obtain sympathy that to many his words seem genuine. You know what? There are times when I've had to say to myself, don't read the letter. Man, you read Kellogg's letters. I'm not saying you should, but I've read some of them. Oh, poor Dr. Kellogg, he's getting picked on all the time. You know, his, he, was, he could present things, you know, and only when you read everybody else's letters do you start to see, well, this guy's lying. This guy is just plain lying, man. Going on. Mysticism. Another specific element is the matter of mysticism. Look at it for just a moment. We need not the mysticism that is in Living Temple. Those who entertain these sophistries will soon find themselves in a position where the enemy can talk with them and lead them away from God. Okay, well, one more here. Your ideas, Dr. Kellogg, are so mystical that they are destructive to the real substance, and the minds of some are becoming confused in regard to the foundation of our faith. If you allow your mind to become thus diverted, you will give a wrong mold to the work that has made us what we are. Seventh-day Adventist. Okay, mysticism. Try to be really quick on this. The heart and soul of mysticism is the concept that I, as a human being, have it within my power to establish direct contact with divinity. That's, that's basically what it is. There's all sorts of ways of doing that, and we've got, we've got all sorts of new models that have been worked out for us you know, very conveniently in just recent years. You know, We've got contemplative prayer, different forms of meditation, yoga, mindfulness, which is the stupidest thing I've ever heard. Here you are. Please empty your mind for 20 minutes, and then let's call it mindfulness. Don't play dumb games with me. Anyhow, English is confusing enough without doing that to it. Anyhow, uh, you've got all sorts of ways, but the purpose of all of these is to establish contact with the divine. Okay, whatever you envision the divine to be. Right? Okay. Ellen White was in her early career several times accused of saying she could have a vision when she wanted to. She always reacted vehemently. I kind of wondered about it. I was like, lady, come on, please, calm down. You, know, you, you just hint. Yeah, I think she said she could have a vision. Boom! You know, and she just, she just, it almost seems like an overreaction. Now I think I know why. It is utterly false that I have ever intimated that I could have a vision when I pleased. There is not a shade of truth in this. I have never said I could throw myself into visions when I pleased, but this is simply impossible. I have felt for years that if I could have my choice and please God as well, I would rather die than have a vision. For every vision places me under great responsibility to bear testimonies of reproof and of warning which has ever been against my feelings. And you know what? These mystics, they're dying to have a vision. <laughs> Somehow I think they're having a different experience than Ellen White had. Ellen White would rather die than have a vision. Well, mysticism is coming up in the world. It's a big thing, okay? This concept of the contact with the divine, right? You can find mystics everywhere. There are the mystics of Catholicism, starting with the Desert Fathers in the second century, right on up through Teresa of Avila and St. John of the Cross and, and all these other guys uh, through. We are in a unique position today because we have the, not we, but others, have the first openly avowed mystic pope, St. Francis, or not St., whatever he is, Pope Francis. Um, St. Francis of Assisi was also a mystic, by the way. Okay, uh, and that's 
I mean, that's, that's why he, he chose the name Francis for his papacy. Okay. Um, Francis is Jesuit. Um, Ignatius of Loyola founded the Jesuit order, and he did so on the strength of the Ignatius disciplines, of which mysticism is key. Okay? So, you know, you've got mystics in Catholicism. You've got mystics in Protestantism. They call them the charismatic movement. You've got them in Judaism. They're called the Kabbalists. Remember Kabbalah? Anybody follow popular culture? This is what, what, was it, what uh, Madonna was into a while back. And there's a bunch of them that, that think, think they're Kabbalists. In Islam, it's the Sufi sect. In Hinduism, it's every guru. In Buddhism, it's every priest. In animism, it's the shamans, the witch doctors. And believe it or not, you've got mystics in atheism. Hallucinogenic drug use. Same experience. Same experience. Anybody know anything about the Beatles? Right? Maybe you don't. Bless you and your wisely chosen selective ignorance. But after advocating drug use, they went off to India for six months and came back and they basically said, wow, we can do the same thing without drugs now. Well, Remember the reapproachment between Pope Francis and Kenneth Copeland? We noticed that a year and some ago. So Copeland's this big, you know, Protestant guy. Sort of Protestant. But he's charismatic. And remember this guy. He's not alive anymore. You know, Man, I tell you, yeah, I, I'm not one to want to you know, openly spread unfounded and uncheckable conspiracy theories. But, you know, if I were going to make a nomination for checking out whether this guy was really human or whether he was an imposter from the demonic world, Tony, buddy, he, he would be on top of my list. <laughs> he comes along, he does a completely demonic work, and then he conveniently dies in a, in a motorcycle accident. Really? <laughs> I don't know. I ain't saying. I'm just saying I'd... I'll ask Jesus about it someday. Uh, but this whole thing was on the basis that we're all mystics. We're all talking to the same God. Who cares about the details? It's working. Now, the guy in white there is the Pope. To uh, your left is Copeland. Uh, left of the Pope is Copeland. Far right is Tony Palmer. I don't really know who the rest of these guys are, or ladies, people, whoever they are, but they're all American, charismatic, quote-unquote, Protestants slash former Protestants, because Tony Palmer got up and said, hey, the protest is over. How can there be a Protestant? Thank you. But it goes further than that. So I'm not sure. Let's see. I'm guessing this gentleman back here is probably Orthodox. And this has to be like Hare Krishna or something with the orange robe. And, and these guys with the turbany things are some brand of Muslim, I suspect. I suppose this guy's Confucian. Maybe it's a woman, I don't really know. But anyhow, uh, this would be Hindu. I don't know about these folks. I'm not sure what the purple robe is. I, I don't know who these people are. You know, there's only one guy in that whole picture that I, I kind of can resonate with. That's the guy in the back left. You know, it's like, how do I get out of here? <laughs> I don't know if he's a bodyguard or what he is, you know, but 
he's the only guy that I can, I can really you know, kind of strike up any bonding with, okay? <laughs> okay, let's go on. I'm, I'm running long here. I'm not careful. I tell you, in the name of the Lord God of Israel, that Satan is presenting his sophistries to ministers and medical workers, and if our people will listen to these sophistries, they will become impregnated with the same satanic idea of a popular religion that will cause them to develop into gods, and there will be no place in their lives for God or for Christ. This is classic mysticism. This is pantheism. We don't call it pantheism anymore, except in scholarly circles. It's just, I'm spiritual. <laughs> or some equally inane thing. Okay, going on. The light is given me to me in regard to the poor understanding of those that have been in the truth, that these sophistries and this mysticism and doing away with the personality of God and with the personality of Christ will get the whole room of the heart all ready for these miracles that Satan will come to work right in our midst. Some shall depart from the faith, giving heed to seducing spirits and doctrines of devils. What kind of miracles are we told in the spirit of prophecy would be entailed here? Uh, that's the way the Bible words it, and there may be, in fact, something that resembles um, you know, fire falling from heaven in, in a physical sort of a sense. I don't know. All sorts of people come up with all sorts of interpretations of that. But the spirit of prophecy says these What is it to bring Seventh-day Adventists to the test? These works of apparent healing will bring Seventh-day Adventists to the test. Okay? The devil knows that God's work always combines the gospel and medical missionary work. And he's going to be running a counterfeit, which means it has to look the same. You know? You cannot counterfeit a butterfly if you look like an alligator. It's not going to work. Okay? And yet, and yet, we have, I have much, much to learn. Some thought the time had come long ago to make a determined effort to break the spell and expose the deception. For years, one and still another of Dr. Kellogg's men have stood forth claiming that Dr. Kellogg is all right, that he teaches the message as we believe it, he believes the testimonies. But at the same time, a work of misrepresentation was going on, and many of our people were becoming spiritually deceived. So why don't you tell them, Sister White? To those who urged immediate action, I said, wait. Until Dr. Kellogg and those closely allied with him take an open stand, then be all prepared with matter ready to print. Same as with Lucifer. I was shown that our brethren must make no move until Dr. Kellogg and his associates had taken a decided position to repudiate the testimonies. When this was done, we must show our people the right side and take the affirmative in the name of the Lord. We had to move, and yet we had to wait until those in error thought they could carry things against the ministers and churches. I was shown their course of action and had everything in readiness for such a movement and labored to defeat their deep-laid plot. Okay. Now, I said a while ago that I don't like to foster conspiracy theories. But you know what? A conspiracy simply means one, uh, two or more people working together to do something that they're not publicly admitting that they're doing. I think that's the same as a deep-laid plot. 
you're not working here in this instance with somebody who's making a mistake and you need to try and just, you know, if you're trying to, trying to prevent the mistake from having bad results. No, no, no. This is someone who is deliberately trying to do you damage. You are, in fact, in a war. Time to wake up. Friends of the doctor were visiting our churches, acting as spies to work up a sentiment favorable to his interests. They claimed that he was in perfect harmony with the message as we believe it and that he believed the testimonies. A work of deception was being carried on. Many of our people were becoming confused. I said to those who urged immediate action, do not act hastily. It would be better to wait until Dr. Kellogg and his associates take the position they do not believe the testimonies. When this time comes, we are to be prepared with suitable manner for publication to meet the issue. This was done. Meetings were held in Battle Creek at which the testimonies were presented in a very objectionable light. The testimonies were practically repudiated, but matter was ready for publication. Our people on the right side took a strong, affirmative position in the name of the Lord, and widespread deception was arrested. One of the leaders in Battle Creek said that the lid of the kettle was lifted too soon, and that had they waited a little longer, they might have had nearly all the churches on their side. This was another classic case. This was 1905 when this happened, December of, actually, uh, December 26, 1905. A.G. Daniels happened to be in Battle Creek. General Carter had already shifted to Washington, D.C. or Tacoma Park. He happened to be back in Battle Creek. He got a telegram on, uh, I think, the 24th that said, uh, documents coming, wait for them. On the night of December 25, on, on Christmas night, Adventists didn't observe Christmas much in those days. So on, the, on Christmas night, there was a late night meeting with Dr. Kellogg and all sorts of other people that went know, two in the morning or something like that. The next morning, Dr. Kel uh, Elder Daniels received the documents from Ellen White and appointed a meeting at 7.30 that night in the Dime Tabernacle, and he stood up and he read the documents, which had been written almost two years before, but had been kept in secret in Ellen White's diary until two weeks before or a week and a half before that when she said, copy that and mail it. And it described the meeting the night before. <coughs> The sentiments in the Living Temple regarding the personality of God have been received even by men who have had long experience in the truth. When such men consent to eat of the fruit of the tree of knowledge of good and evil, we are no longer to regard the subject as a matter to be treated with the greatest delicacy. That those whom we thought sound in the faith should have failed to discern the specious, deadly influence of this science of evil should alarm us as nothing else has alarmed us. This is the, the bind that Daniels felt he was in. Because he would, he would get stuff like this. He says, it's time to speak. And he gets stuff that says, no, you've got to wait. <laughs> that's, a little, that's a little tricky. <laughs> it's a little tricky. It is something that cannot be treated as a small matter that men who have had so much light and such clear evidence as the genuineness of the truth we hold should become unsettled and led to accept spiritualistic theories regarding the personality of God. We don't have time to go through all that. Let's go on to this. <clears throat> now, in 1972, Elder Robert Pearson, a man whom I've always respected, did something that makes me respect him even more. He got in touch with the White Estate, and he said, you know, guys, is there anything more about the Omega of Apostasy? <laughs> I'd really like to know. They wrote back to him, Arthur White wrote back to him, and said, basically, you know, there really isn't the stuff that we've put in selected messages. It's those three statements that I read to you already. That's, that's really about all she ever said. But she said, he said, I did some, I did some hunting, and as I went into our files in response to your request, I found a statement written by my father, Willie White, about 1935, 1936. I think you will be interested in this, for he broadens the basis for the statements on the Alpha and Omega beyond that which one might conclude from just reading them as they are in the text. 
Here's my father's statements. Willie White now. There is one matter which causes us some perplexity. It is that which Sister White has written regarding the Alpha and the Omega of efforts to mislead the people of God. It is clearly to be seen that the Alpha was the introduction of misleading documents and the effort to, write the, to wrest the leadership of the denomination from the men chosen to bear heavy responsibility. It has always seemed to me that when the Omega came, it would bear two characteristics, somewhat similar to the Alpha. The movement designated as the Alpha embraced a deep-laid plan on the part of the great adversary of truth to introduce false doctrine which struck at the very vitals of Christian belief. That's the pantheism. It also embraced a persistent and strongly sustained effort to wrest the leadership of this people from the General Conference Committee and place it in the hands of other men. With these things in mind, I cannot accept any movement that I have seen up to the present time as constituting the Omega. When the Omega does come, I shall expect to see something similar to the work of Dr. Kellogg and his associates when they labored so earnestly to undermine the confidence of all our people in the leadership of the General Conference. This is Willie White. This is not Ellen White. And I'm sure even in his own mind, this would not be some sort of a blanket endorsement for the General Conference, because trust me, he'd lived through the 1890s as well, and he knew that there was a time when who can now respect the voice of the General Conference as the voice of God. You know, he knew all that. But nonetheless, this is his, his assessment. I would probably have to argue with it in a very specific sense, just on the basis of that one statement where Ellen White says the Alpha is contained in the book. It's hard to contain, you know, it's, it's easy to contain a theory in a book. It's hard to contain a, a, a rebellion against leadership in a book as such, although, you know, and yet, I think, well, I think Willie's, you know, I concur with his general judgment. Because if the alpha is a, a type of the omega, there's, there's lots to learn. Okay, almost done, almost done, sorry. My heart was filled with sorrow because of the course that J.H. Kellogg is following. And A.T. Jones is following the same course and voicing the same sentiments with the most determined spirit. When a realization of this comes over me with such force, great sorrow fills my soul I have before me such a revival, the first great apostasy in the heavenly courts that I am bowed down with an agony that cannot be expressed. There is a value. You know, the sufferings of one person are the blessings of the, those who follow. And Ellen White was bowed down with an agony that cannot be expressed, I believe, for our benefit, because this is the picture that's developing here. We started off with Lucifer's Rebellion. And then we saw Christ's response, which was the revelation of the character of God. Then we saw Kellogg, who picked up the genius of that, which was the combined preach, teach, heal, revelation of the character of God. Kellogg, unfortunately, flipped the traces and went from being a representative of Christ to being a representative of Lucifer. Those four events are history. We can study them to understand these two. And that's what we'll try to cover tomorrow. Let's kneel for prayer. Dear Father, we are the recipients of instruction and light and evidence purchased by the tears and agony of those who've gone before us. We pray that you would help us to be wise to recognize the reality of the conflict, to understand 
the importance of the principle. Lord, there is so much, so many details. Help us to study them maybe as, as might be useful for us individually. But help us to be able to hang our souls on that which is simple. Help us to remember that, in fact, God is love. And it is our task and our privilege to represent him in the world in which we now live. May we do so as Jesus did through his grace, we pray. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.